All right, welcome back to the Scuttlebutt Marine Corps Association podcast. I'm Nick. I'm here with Vic. Hello. And we have an exciting part two of Justin the Hue today. But before we get to that, uh, let's uh, shoot the Scuttlebutt a little bit. Yeah, yeah, let's do a little, uh, let's talk a little Scuttle. All right, so um, I noticed in the news, Vic, that... uh, Australia's going nuclear. Yeah, well, <laughs> at least underwater nuclear, like uh, at, at Atlanteans or something. But yeah, so uh, interestingly, um, we just made a uh, cooperative agreement with Australia to uh, sell them nuclear submarines. So they'll be the first non-nuclear country to have a nuclear capability in their submarines. And so um, I think it's... Uh, it's a bold move, obviously. Uh, it's rubbed a lot of people sort of the wrong way. Yeah. I know they didn't explicitly say that uh, this shift was in response to uh, a certain near-peer emerging threat, but uh, they definitely took it that way, and so the Chinese aren't happy uh, about this move. Um, and then neither are the French, apparently, uh, because the French had a contract for their standard diesel powered yeah, yeah, uh, submarines 12 of them i think something like that yeah. yeah so the french aren't too happy with this either um yeah. and not just regular diesel submarines these are like the biggest ones in the world yeah, yeah, yeah. these yeah. are going to be some pretty <laughs> these are be some monsters yeah. um but in, in in please for any uh navy folks out there or, or submarine geeks um i'm going to just say right now i don't know a ton about this but just from what i've been reading um you know, the nuclear-powered subs can basically stay underwater nearly indefinitely. Forever, from what I yeah. understand. Because you generate your own oxygen and fresh water, so... It's, it's I mean, it's a floating... Yeah. It's an underwater city or yeah. something. Uh, so I don't think that uh, solves the hot-racking issue. <laughs> but that, I think as far as powering, um, mobility, and then I think there's got to be some sort of sonic benefit to it as well because you don't have a bunch of and en- like engine parts clanging around or whatever right you would yeah, with a combust- a standard combustion engine mechanically more simple i guess yeah uh that makes sense to me yeah yeah run this silent, is this show's deep. called scuttlebutt not unpacking <laughs> <Yeah>. so <laughs> we saw the headline thought it was relevant and, and it, it definitely helps um you know especially um, as we're looking at doing area denial, as we're looking at near-peer threats in a region, um, and as uh, a near-peer or peer threat, uh, as their tech emerges, it's best just good practice for us to enable our allies in the region, uh, vice trying to take it on um, solo style. And uh, as China's surface fleet gets bigger and more advanced equipping our allies in the region with sub marines <laughs> <laughs> would i think is a strategic advantage uh, for us and obviously for australia so um yeah and a stronger australia gives us a stronger uh projection point into well sure i mean if you look at world war ii and well, yeah, if you go all the way back yeah. to world war ii i mean the island hopping campaign was facilitated big time with our mm-hmm. ability to reach back to um australia as a hub i mean we've got darwin uh we've got perth 
And so we've got a presence there already. Um, and we've got a historic ally and a cooperation uh, there. So it just it makes a lot of sense to do this thing. And then, um, yeah, I, I, it seems like a, seems like a win me. for the red, white, and blue. The so. only lose for me, though, is uh, the UK's part of this uh, thing. And the, uh, the acronym for it is all over the board. It's like the OS... US we're in a, we're an thing. area like, of, of we need to fix that of, yeah just ridiculous <laughs> acronym proliferation yeah it's so, getting out of whole, out of control like um we, I don't know why we, we, like there's got to be a better way there's got to be a better way yeah right like are they even acronyms at this point I've had this debate with other people like I thought an acronym was you take a bunch of words that make a word yeah these are we're just this is alphabet soup. Yeah, we're just us, <laughs> OC, USA, or I can't remember how. I've seen it like three different yeah. ways, and it's like, come on, guys. Yeah, what are uh, we even talking about? Anyway? So if we're gonna do billions of dollars in nuclear subs, we can should be able to spend a few thousand dollars <laughs> on a PR campaign to figure out what we the right. We call this thing. Yeah. So. Well, speaking of acronyms too, you know, we're talking. Um, Force Design 2030 and uh, Expeditionary Amphibious Basing. Um, so, again, you know, uh, facilitating a submarine capability um, that we don't have to source on our own is huge. Yeah. Um, and then, again, we're talking area denial and the sort of, the, you know, the, the, the eternal chess game. Um, yeah. yeah, getting into that. I know that you're not a big fan of this. The C5 ISRT aspect of there you force go. design another, command. Another sweet acronym that control, I cannot keep track of. Communicate, computer, cyber intelligence, surveillance, recon, targeting. Yeah, it's a mouthful. I mean, yeah. Come on, guys. We're going to spend all this effort working on a force design 10 years in the future, nine years in the future now. Yeah. And, uh, here we are with C five ISRT. It'll change again for sure before yeah. then. How many how many letters can you add before <laughs> it's too many? <laughs> well, um speaking though of you know, Force Design twenty thirty, um back in April, um General Berger, the commandant, um, released an annual sort of um update on progress and he said that since Fort Design 2030 was announced in March of 2020, considerable progress has been made as we enter into year two of this 10-year modernization initiative. The Marine Corps activated, deactivated, and realigned many units across the Marine Air Ground Task Force, begun the divestiture. Um, I see what you're trying to read there, and I was struggling with that earlier, Yeah, too. yeah. Um, <laughs> and, you know, basically after, and this is not a quote from General Berger, but um, that, uh, but this is according to USI, USNI News, that uh, after a year of modeling and simulation, wargaming, and exercises in the field, the Marine Corps is still focused on four main areas, logistics and sustainment, long-range precision fires, Alternate positioning, navigation, and timing (PNT), and the infamous C five ISRT. It was only what two years ago. That was just C fours. It was just I four know, Cs. Well, I remember C four I, um, and even then I was like, "What's the fourth C?" Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, 
the SRT. You know, like, I think the only acronym that, that has survived any sort of contact was BAMSIS. <laughs> <laughs> after that, yeah. I think everything, or maybe JJ did tie buckle, but after that, everything seems to uh, get, en- ends up with a, you know, having, uh, speaking of investing, vice divesting, we've definitely not divested of our acronyms. Yeah. Um, at a certain point, they just stop having meaning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, so 2030, uh, and this obviously, like I said, the scuttlebutt, not unpacking uh, or deep diving. Um, we do do that, though, and we do that through the Marine Corps Gazette, and we've got some shows coming up, uh, one from a program manager in the acquisition field and another from a uh, strategic professor at George Mason University. So please stand by for those amazing interviews. But for those, and like, again, I just want to caveat, this isn't going to be a deep dive into Force Design 2030, but for those who are interested in what it has to say, we're basically looking at some bullet points here of what the Commandant wants to accomplish. Uh, He wants to reduce uh, the total force of Marines uh, by 12,000 by 2030, uh, divest of three active uh, law enforcement battalions, uh, the GCE is going to be reorganized. ACE is going to be reorganized as well. Um, so basically divesting of three infantry battalions, um, it, rocket art, uh, investing in rocket artillery, divesting of tanks, highly controversial uh, topic there, uh, divesting of three heavy helicopter squadrons, divesting of three medium lift tilt rotor squadrons, divesting of at least two light attack helicopter squadrons, investing in unmanned aerial systems, divesting of... Uh, be still by heart. This is a shot <laughs> shot to the gut, but divesting of two assault amphibian companies and reduction of AAV and ACV requirements. Ugh, my goodness. Yeah, so there's some painful stuff in yeah, there. Yeah, no, that hurts. Yeah, that so hurts neither of us really care too much about the tanks, so that controversial opinion. Hey, no, easy, easy. <laughs> I am a met guy. Tanks save lives, baby. Tanks so, save yeah. lives. Okay, so maybe you care but, a little bit. Yeah, they're heavy, <laughs> and when they show up on shore, you know what you're getting yourself yeah, into. You're getting, so. you're getting some, uh, some yeah. action there. Yeah, but, uh, it's not a road show when tanks show up. Well, as far as the photo ops go, losing the tilt rotors isn't the best thing ever because they're beautiful in any sunset. Yes, um, and they're fun to say, tilt rotor. Tilt rotor, yeah. <laughs> the, uh, so, and also the going towards the rocket artillery kind of – Hurts me a little bit by by uh, close contact. My old man is an artillery officer. Yeah. So he was all about the seven seven seven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Triple sevens are awesome. But I mean, yeah. MLRS, man, they like you see those things go off. It is a it's a sight to see. But basically, here's the I guess the 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 nickel tour of Force Design twenty thirty. Obviously, a ton of divesting, a bunch of investing in technology, and then uh, a huge huge emphasis on war gaming. Thus, for those who are familiar with Quantico and the current construction efforts, uh, there, I mean, the, the war gaming effort is real, very real. And it's, yeah, yeah. And it's so, right across the street right across from the where street. we are yeah. right now. Not a lot of good, not a lot of parking. We now. don't have parking anymore. <laughs> yeah. Thank uh, you, Crew Lock Center. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, but yeah, yeah, doff of the cap. Uh, but here, uh, I do want to say is for those who are interested in this, the, the thing that, to look at is that tension. 
between reduction in manpower numbers and then the investing in, in tech. And, you know, where, you know, some uh, folks are in the camp of the more Marines you have, the better the Marine Corps is. Other folks say, hey, the more you look like the future, the better off you're going to be. And so, you know, where do those, where do we find entropy between those two things? I don't know, but there are a lot of people in the Marine Corps Gazette who have an opinion about this and a well-informed opinion. They speak or they write eloquently about it. So please check out the Marine Corps Gazette and feel free to participate in this discussion as well um, because obviously a lot of folks have a, a lot of things to say about it. Yep. And the Gazette does also have a blog where people can express their opinions. You yep. can uh, chime in on the uh, any of the Facebook posts that we use that uh, – Yeah. To Please time in. Plenty join of places, the discussion. Plenty Absolutely. of places to join us, yes. And um, with that, we are going to jump into part two, Sergeant Major Justin LeHue. Yeah, uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. All right. This is good <laughs> stuff, guys. We'll see you on the other side. Awesome. <laughs> well, we're back now. Um, and so we were talking about that uh, camaraderie of arms, that bond that we make through engagement, not based off of the reputation that you see on a piece of paper, that trust that's earned by being engaged, getting to know one another. Mm -hmm. Those family days that are huge. Um, I know, uh, you know, even for maybe those Marines who are single, you know, have maybe not immediate family in the area, but for them to see their brothers and sisters with their families makes it like you said it's a force multiplier there's just nothing that can think can get between that especially someone who's trying to take that away not from you but from the families mm -hmm. that you care about um but that goes away uh we talked about how you know the one guarantee when you raise your right hand is that you're going to not be in uniform at some point whether it's an eas whether it's a retirement everybody from the uh you know, first tour corporal to the Commandant of the Marine Corps is going to be stepping out of uniform and into something else. What are some of the things that you've experienced in that being that you are at the highest echelons of the Marine Corps, then all of a sudden it, you weren't anymore? Uh, can you talk a little bit about what that was like for you? Uh, yeah, it's the, the, the transition you nailed on the head is everybody will eventually, one way or another, have to if you've done things right or unfortunately through death or some other things uh you know your exit from the u.s marine corps is not going to be seen it's not going to be the same um the best piece of advice is that although you're marines or your soldier sailors airmen uh guards it doesn't matter is no two careers have been the same no two lives have been the same so why would we think that anybody's exits from the military are going to be the same. So we have transitional classes. We can prepare the things. I believe that we do believe that, that, that Marines are some of the best procrastinators I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> they are. They're the most ferocious fighters I've had the pleasure of serving with. Uh, the self-imposed stress that people put on their own lives to either perform their daily functions to do that is normally self-imposed in a lot of ways of 85% of, I want to be better, I want to do this. It isn't that person told me I had to do this, is this is not good enough. I'm going to refine, I'm going to refine, I'm going to refine. At the end of the careers, people don't have an exit plan. 
you find that in a lot of things. Or they had waited too long. Mm -hmm. There are certain financial things that pigeonhole people's choices when they get out that are kind of right there in your face. Your balance sheet uh, tells you a lot of... Uh, are you ready to retire? Are you not ready to retire? Are you ready to do this? Can you branch out on some of your hobbies and still not work an eight-hour day or something? So it gives you these choices right. when you get out that is here, which goes again is nobody can tell you what to do is you've created that. Those are your opportunities and your choices that are there. Um, but on the point that you made – I have never went into a situation, whether it's combat or anything else, without a plan. Meaning even the days you're in combat, the following day comes, there's still discussions in the previous day about either what happened that day and what's not going to happen tomorrow. There's some fine tweaking. There's some things that are here. There's a plan. Mm -hmm. There isn't just this happened today, everybody gets in the rack, let's wake up and deal with tomorrow right. when tomorrow right. comes. That does not work out well. You do find, a, a, I wouldn't say it's a lot, but you find a lot of people in their transition that have a hard time in their transition kind of were the people that applied the principle of I've exhausted myself to the point of everything today, and I'll just deal with tomorrow when tomorrow comes, and you find out one is a father, one is a grandparent or anything else. I'm still not just responsible for me. I'm responsible so my family knows the plan mm -hmm. here. It's here because, Dad, the, the family plan for all these years was every three years we'll pick up. You've got a new job. You've got this. There was an expectation again, yep. as we talked about earlier, this is going to happen. It's a routine. The routine's over. Okay. Nobody, the, the thing I always love walking into a VFW or an American Legion, and it's always a great conversation to sit around with a bunch of old, out of shape men and women uh, talking about what just happened on the news. And there's always somebody like, I, I, you know, I'm going to go over to the base and ask them if they need any help. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know what? You're like, cheers to you, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. I'll drive you over. We're going to have a great discussion with a Lance Corporal at the gate. Yeah. <laughs> and they're going to say, thanks a lot for coming on over. We got this. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. And let's go back to the VFW or Mickey Fens or something, and we'll finish this conversation. <laughs> it's great. But you also love those people that still have that fire that say that, I have skills, or I think I could be of use, or I, they don't just want to go down range to create destruction and all that. They're kind of like, even some of the people we call back, they're happy to come back to say, I I'll come back and be a staff sergeant that stands that gate to free that kid up to go do this. Right. And that's the beauty of these things. Purpose. Patriotic. Patriotic purpose, and also our third P here is plan. Mm -hmm. There's a plan with this, right? Because the plan of the guy sitting in the VFW going, I'm going to get recalled back and we're going to do this, that's not a good plan right. to have that you can apply. Uh, that's not on the teep. That's not on the teep. But <laughs> I know this happened to this one guy that was here. That's exactly right. But that's not the plan to do that. I see a lot in the transition of Marines burning the candle at both ends. I did it myself. When the light is about to go out at the end of whether it's four years or 40 years, just like the light in our life at 80 and 90 years, everybody you ever see and talk to that's lived that, that that light's about to go out tells you how fast it all happened. Mm -hmm. 
and how you can be prepared or whatever, but I can't believe how fast 81 years just went. Or I can't believe it's in a blink of an eye. I have three grandkids. I have this, right? The same thing happens once you're on that slide in the Marine Corps. And the earlier that you can plan for something at the bottom of that slide to slide into that was here, not only makes it better for your own personal transition, but really helps the people around you who are experiencing that as well that's going with you if you have a family. And even if you don't have a family, like you talked about earlier, everyone has a family. Everyone has somebody they care about that's going through a journey that is on that. And so what I saw, I would see people um, at the extreme in tears. I would see people that when I worked at the the Training and Education Command, uh, there was a lot of colonels in that command, always. There, there just is in the meat grinder that's daily hall across the street to churn the cheese and all here, right? I would see a lot of people, and that's where their careers were going to stop. They were pilots before, but that's, they're not going back to them. They're not going here. They're at 31 years, 32 years that we're here. I would see people put in retirement requests that we would sign off. Up there, you'd have the sit-down, officers would meet with the CG, anybody else, the senior enlisted, and people would meet with me that is over here. I'd always have them still meet with the CG, because that's that family we talked about before. Everybody makes a difference. Um, but what you would also see is then they would go to the transition readiness, or then they'd start finding out how unprepared they were, mm-hmm. and this is not going to change. So now your timeline is rapidly compressed, and in rapidly compressed timelines, the UDA decision cycle doesn't allow enough things to come into it for a lot of good choices. Sometimes a lot of people in transition have to make rapid choices then. And I have friends that are out there that are on their 11th, 12th, and 13th job. Every time they I sign mm-hmm. into LinkedIn or something, that person's got a different job that's mm-hmm. over here. And I see the same trend. Here's the business suit. I'm happy to be part of this team that's over here. And then you're asking your buddy, like, hey, didn't I just see Dave working for that place six months ago? And then you reach out and talk to them. It's like, I just didn't, just didn't feel right. There was something there that was mm-hmm. missing, right? Yeah. And I saw that over here because I would actually see some of those guys who had submitted for retirement actually come back and ask to pull that back. Mm. And it wasn't to pull it back because of, there was this Uber project that someone needed to go from cradle to grave with, and they're the person that has all the knowledge. They wanted to pull it back because they were not prepared. They needed additional time. They needed to now, I need to be able to network. I need to be able to do this, but I only got 60 days left. I haven't been to medical. I haven't started any of that process to change that stuff over into the VA because we are very good at burning out our best people. They went unchecked. Um, People always say, I'm going to work till 1630 or 1800 the day I get out of the Marine Corps, and then I don't want a ceremony or anything else. I just kind of want to go home that day and to do that. You're going to find out a lot of that time it doesn't play out very good once you close that chapter that's on the outside. So we saw that in transition. My personal transition, I tell people, was easier because I knew what you had already said up front when I came in the Marine Corps 30 years ago, that this was not I didn't get to stay at the party the whole time to leave when I leave. 
but you do have a choice in that. And I used to advise people the same things I advised in my own life. Don't ever stay at something one day too long. Yep. Okay? Don't ever stay at something to where other people have a decision in the trajectory of your life that you may not want that way when you still have a say in the trajectory of your life. And before I had left TCOM, I had sat some staff NCOs down. And uh, I usually like to clear the air with some jokes and you, and you have everything else that was on there. And somebody had asked the same question, like, what's the, how do you know, Sergeant Major, when it's, when it's time, right? I said, that's a very good question because I've heard that when I was a younger Marine. And I would watch Master Guns leave or I would watch something else. And here's the ceremony and here's the passing review and there's all that love. And then that night he's walking out to his car and he's by himself. Mm -hmm. and he's driving off and the parade's over, the parade's everything. I can remember being the Lance Corporals and standing in those formations watching those guys walk to their cars. And it was sad. It was sad because they were some of these most beloved people. They were, mm -hmm. they were at the clubs. They were the people doing this. And there was not that interaction for you anymore, which was sad. But you knew there wasn't going to be that interaction for them, right? And then I saw that. So I personally put triggers in that platoon sergeant's notebooks that you talked about earlier. Those smelly journals in the basement that smell like sweat, diesel <laughs> yeah. fuel, all that. that yeah, you yeah. shove in the back yeah, underneath right. your martial arts belt yeah. and your wife don't want it on the kitchen table or nothing at home. And you do this. I have hundreds of those lined up in the basement that are reminders to me that I put triggers in each side of those to help keep myself on track. As a staff sergeant, as a gunnery sergeant, something, do this. Remember to do this. And I would break those journals into the daily things that I had to do, points of contact that were always in the front, the madness that is everybody's mind on why did you decide to flip 32 pages and just randomly write something away from here. That has its own random section. Mm -hmm. And then every one of those 100-plus journals, there's about five or six pages in the back that have nothing to do with the flow of anything else in that journal. It is when you had walked out, Nancy and I talking here, and she's like, God, I wish I had a pen and paper right now so I could be writing down some of these things. Those five or six pages with that conversation mm. we just had. It was that nugget you heard from somebody that day. It's like, makes no sense, but boy, I like that. Yeah. That went in those five or six pages because you didn't have to fit it in to the daily stuff that you had to do. Right. But this is the stuff you never wanted to forget was back there on that five or six. I have hundreds of those, right? And I go through those five or six pages all the time on a lot of those of, Dad, when you were a sergeant, and I have that section that's sergeant when they were there, and all the cut-up camis that were the book covers that you would make <laughs> right, on there, right. your pocket, <laughs> and you see this transition of colors. Um, what was, the what was the resounding theme as a sergeant in those five and six pages? And I would read 15 or 20 of those and start pulling out some of those nuggets along the way. And you would see this picture that was built. And it would say things like, make sure you do this. You are not always going to have to wear this uniform in life. And you'd see that little nugget. And my capstone at TCOM that answers that question was we were sitting at that table of staff NCOs and that staff NCO asked me about that when do you know it's time the first question I always ask a person who asked me that is how many times have you asked yourself that question 
if this is the first time you are not ready to get out of that uniform yet. Because you will start. You're always thinking 100% about the Marine Corps, 98% about the Marine Corps, 2% about your family, anything else. As you start older and older, those metrics start to slide and change. Mm -hmm. You're now starting to think 20% about what life's like on the outside, but you're still giving 80% to the Marine Corps. You do this, right? You're still maintaining to the 50% line. Then you start getting into the dangerous territory where you're starting to talk more about this stuff or I'm having problems waking up in the morning. I'm not as motivated anymore to do that. And I would keep these metric slides to do that. And then I said, if you're having that conversation with three other people and it's your fourth or fifth or sixth time, you it may not be your time, but you are in the metric yeah, slide. You're getting there. Okay? Yeah. You can have small spurts of motivation that bounces that in the metric slide, but you're not going to stop the metric slide once you have those levels. But you also always hear other people as, well, I'm not going to do this job when it's not fun anymore. That's not true because you don't have fun every single you day that's right. on here and you're having that, right? However, I had this one called a 10-step program. And everybody was like, you used to be an alcoholic? What, <laughs> yeah, what do you, you do? I'm you like, a coin? no. I said it had nothing to do. There's no coins, nothing out. I said my mental 10-step program when I was at TCOM was this. For every bad thing that I experience or I see today that takes my motivation and throws it in the toilet where I feel bad, I look bad, I don't have that drive, discipline, desire, I'm feeling that. For every one of those things, uh, that's one step on the 10 steps closer to when I need to personally retire that is on here. For every good thing that I see in that 24-hour period, you subtract one step back. You take one step back. I had a great interaction. I went to the McMap pit. We, some Lance Corporal threw me over around like a rag doll, but it was the greatest day. And now I have to take an ice bath, eat some Motrin, but God, it felt great to be a Marine. That yeah, day. Yeah, That's yeah. one step down, right? If in any 24-hour period I get to the count of 10, I need to leave the Marine mm -hmm. Corps. Because what that says is I am no longer looking for the goodness every day that's yeah. happening all around yeah. here. I'm only concentrating It's still happening. You're just not bat. seeing it. I'm not seeing yeah. it. And more importantly, I'm not looking for it anymore. Mm. So then the question after that is always, well, what made you get to step 10? I said the beauty was I never got to step 10. I got to 8, and it scared the shit out of me one day. And I ran into the general's office and said, I can't explain anything, but I need to get the hell out of the CP right now sir, uh, and I'm just going to go out and say hi to Marines I'm a, because I wasn't ready mentally for that transition. But I put that trigger point in there that yeah. no matter how good or bad I was feeling, I held myself to that standard. If you get to this, don't just talk yourself down today, say, oh, that was bullshit. No, you put that trigger for a reason. Yeah. And that 10 went out there. When I got to 8, I bolted down a ladder well. I went over the chow hall. How you doing, Marines? What did you do today? Can I help you with some pull-ups? Can I do something like this? And you'd see the smile on kids' faces because they didn't interact with a sergeant major or they haven't done that like that. Or the sergeant major was like, how are you doing today, Marine? No, how are you really doing? Right, right, right. I want to know what you're doing. And then you find out that kid never had a conversation with somebody like that. There's that one step that was here. But when you were already in the slide, 
and the eight steps are already there, you had already started to mentally make plans to, we're not going to stop the slide, we're going to plan and prepare. And then I went to the transition aspect of, I still need to do the job, but my job now is to do this. That's really good. That's like um, you don't wait to your FPF to start planning your alternate and supplementary positions. Well right? said. Yeah. Absolutely. But what we also saw that was on there and I experienced is there are two things that I believe every Marine is owed when they leave the U.S. Marine Corps. And a lot of people are like, well, you know, Marines aren't owed anything or I'm not owed anything for it. Uh, a federal and your regular resume that you have, whether you are four years in the Marine Corps or 30 years, no commander in the Marine Corps that sends a Marine to a transition class. Go to transition four days, whatever that is. Each commander should like a boomerang. When that Marine comes back, get a little bit of a debrief about what that was, because it helps the commander get other people to there. Sure. But more importantly is, the commander should say, show me your resume. Show me the resume. It's here. It's almost like the guy saying, like, hey, what's your plan? Well, I'm going to go to college. Which college? What's your major? Uh, well, I, you have no plan. Okay? So let me help you along mm -hmm. that line. Mm -hmm. Transition assistance classes, those resumes are the key to the entry gate that you have to provide. Even if you're networking that are out there, you normally have to provide references mm -hmm. that call back that are here. And you also have to say, let me see your resume. Your resume may not be what they hire you off of, but it's the wicket that they have to have to say yeah, everybody's going to ask for it. Everybody's going to ask for that, right? And I went to that class, and believe it or not, Sergeant Major LeHugh, 30 years, plan, prepare everything, getting out of the thing. Thursday, walked out of an executive transition readiness seminar class with no resumes in my hand. Even though the worksheets are turned in, we'll help you do the resumes. And okay, class is over. Okay, where's these resumes? Uh, well, here's where we got to the point mm -hmm. of where those are at. Now, go back. There are always questions about you can always come back for resources. You can do that. Life starts creeping in. And then all of a sudden, I started getting vectored to, well, there are professional resume writers that are out there, right? Some of them used to be Marines. They're not there. That's fine. And a lot of people were just saying, well, you don't have to do that yourself. Go pay somebody. Actually, do that. So I did that once because I ain't got time. I'm in the two-star headquarters. We're still traveling around. The slide's happening. I'm getting ready to go out. I kind of know what I want to do because my wife shows me. It's really neat. At the uh, transition readiness seminar, everybody has to sign in on a sheet that's got your email, like civilian email address, and then it has this little thing that says, what do you want to do, like when you grow up? That's another thing. Everybody always has to sign something that's on there. I'm going to go to school, or I'm going to do this. It's interesting to see what Colonel Sergeant Major's Master Guns generals put on what I'm going to do mm -hmm. that's over there. And she said, look at what you wrote on the bottom of that thing. And it said... MIA search and recovery for the United States government. Whether it was for the government, whether it was not that, she goes, you wrote that on there. She goes, without any collegiate level education to do that, without anything on a resume that would say hire me to do that job that was in here, she goes, that's what you put on that. Without any clear door to execute that plan that you were going to put onto that thing. And I said, I knew that's what I was going to do, so I'm going to find a way to make that happen. And there is always a crack in the door. 
And once you get in the door, it ain't the resume or anything else, there's always something in there that usually tells people, I want that person to work for me or I don't want that person to work for me that's here. When all things may be the same or all things may be PhDs that are out there and maybe no PhDs that are on there to do that is, my God, this person has taught thousands of hours in the Marine universities. They may not have a master's degree that's here, but I found out out there that when I entered the educational arena to do that, those people that had PhDs and masters that didn't feel comfortable doing that, I had one guy actually say, my certificate gets you in the auditorium. We're going to use that. But when we're on the auditorium, you're going to be the one talking for two hours mm -hmm. and lecturing 500 people. Wow. That's not my comfort level to do that, right? You don't have the certificate where anybody will sit there to give you the why, why should you listen to this? But I'm going to be sitting in the back of the room because I'm the credentials. I'm the verification. I, in my first five minutes, are going to tell people the why you need to listen to this guy that is sitting there. And we found out that door opened wider and wider and wider and wider. And when it did, more opportunity, more opportunity, mm -hmm. more opportunity of things that you really wasn't connected to or people. All of a sudden, your path was not into that. But all of a sudden, people wanted more of whatever it was they were interacting with you and that transition was prepared like that and it was utilizing the best resources and tools you had that may not have been just because of all these certificates that you had on the wall or promotion warrants or all this other stuff it was identifying your own passion that was there and then it was applying that passion because that passion without applicability and application is a pipe dream yeah, that is yeah. out there and I found there's a lot of people running around. You don't want to diminish people's dreams, but a very few of them have the means to apply the dreams that they are doing. And you find out the people who can do that are very unique people. You always know it when you see it. There's something different about that person, something different about that person. Even though these other people are all more qualified than what it is, there's something different about that one. Mm -hmm. And when you are the person that is the something different about something, you find out that other people are intrigued to find out how Absolutely. you are the way you are. And they are intrigued because their experiences, they want to get to know how you became that way through your experiences because those weren't their experiences. And then you uniquely find a way in today's day and age that was really uberly um, – I, you know, people use diversity for the wrong terms, I believe, that's out there and the wrong meaning is I have one of the best things out there going. It is the most diverse team you ever wanted to see of people that society would say these should not get along together. They shouldn't. These are people who have been in academia their entire career, that the message out there is they're being brainwashed in academia, they're not patriotic, they're not this, uh, the country's going to shit because they chose to be in college mm -hmm. their entire time mm -hmm. it was here, right? Then you kind of find out that's a pretty wide, broad brush to be painting that. And then you have the people in academia saying, you're a warmonger, you're right. a militant, you're this, and, you know, baby killers, and that's all this here, and you have this. And then you have people that are 70 that 
like are the duty experts in Mayan culture and history around the world, right down to people who are right out of college at 24 or 25 with that explanation level. So even though this person's been in academia their entire life, this person's been in academia, that little thing, you can't group those two together. They're not the same that are on that. Yet we take every single thing of that, whether it's male, female, uh, pathway that comes from there, utilize and bond a team that likes to work together, that appreciates each other for what each other brings to the team. And as a leader, you find out you have the tools because you have built teams all these years mm -hmm. at the levels of hundreds and thousands, like you said, at certain major, when you get out, you were at the level of where basically 90,000 U.S. Marines are coming through your schools or training pipelines or whatever at the Marine Corps of this command, and you're influencing this thing that's here. Um, yeah, you're a top executive of a Fortune 5 the company. The, the greatest thing was I never looked at myself as the top executive of a Fortune 500 company because I gave as much drive, discipline, desire, motivation, and passion in talking to one person as I did talking to 10,000 people that was out there. So if I would show up and just say that, uh, you know, Sergeant Major Lee coming to talk to staff NCOs and officers, whatever, uh, get him out on Dewey Square. He's going to talk about this for 30 minutes and, you know, five people show up. They're here. I had friends over there that would not talk to people like that. Be like, well, where's the other 500 people? Right. Well, these five people chose to show up today. I have a 30 minute block of time. It's here. These five people are going to get a pretty good conversation today that is on that. They're going to walk away with that because you've impacted that one life. A lot of time it isn't about the major message. It's about maybe that's the person that day that needed the message yeah. that you actually had to give. And even though you do this routinely and this is secondhand to you, it's everything else, whatever they showed up to hear that day may change that person's life more than your life. And, may, and you don't know what that is because you don't know them, but this is what they took away from that. So planting that seed again. It is planting that seed. Those little nuggets, like you were saying earlier, written down in the back of your book. Bingo. And the Marine Corps, I can thank for that. I can thank that all the way back to my parents, my teachers. I can do that. The Marines enhanced all that through. When, it was, when I was a corporal, uh, they made me act like a sergeant. When I was a sergeant, I needed to be a staff sergeant. There was always something there. Sometimes when I was a sergeant major, I was the lieutenant colonel. You know, there was, there was expectations. At one time when we were really going heavy into the fight, um, we, and I was at 1st Recon Battalion, we had very minimal officers that were in battalion, a battalion that had a lot of leadership stripped away because at the time the Marine Corps was trying to build MARSOC and they have to take it from the reconnaissance community to start doing that. And these these recon young officers and, and young recon Marines were going to the fight left and right. So their experience level is going at the cyclic rate. It's right. And once they got to a certain thing, you're out, you're out, you're out. And in those battalions, there wasn't a lot of field grade officers. There's a there's an operations officer if you're lucky there's an executive officer that's inside of there and you have such a reduced structure and manpower that you really need to keep a lot of those guys where the rubber meets the road mm -hmm. we had an executive officer we had to make a decision and the colonel came to me and says i got one major where do you think he needs to be at 
And we were talking about that. And, and he talked to other people, one just that was here. And the consensus, the general consensus was the major needs to be the operations officer. That's who moves the whole place. We, mm-hmm. We're not going to gap the OPSO billet. So we're a gap and exo spill it. It's here. We could have taken a lieutenant out of one of those platoons and make him a pseudo XO or the adjutant could have came over to be that. But the workload was so great that if you took them away from those other primary, it would diminish both of those jobs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we were not willing to do that. So I am a fitness report in the Marine Corps as a battalion executive <laughs> officer and a sergeant major that took a unit to combat um, because we had an unfortunate incident in which a major of ours had developed cancer and he had passed away in the seat. And that was our executive officer who I came really close with that was there. Um, And we're getting ready to go to Iraq, take the whole battalion and cancer comes down. It was aggressive. It was rapid. Uh, Major Tom Mazzella was, uh, was, uh, was a fine man that was there. And we ended up taking the battalion over, uh, and a couple of us flew back and conducted Major Mazzella's funeral that was there, myself and the adjutant. We have to do that because now i got a, a battalion that's in combat yeah, yeah. to do this here. Um, a lot of people say, hmm, I wonder how the Marine Corps didn't prepare you to do anything that was like that. Au contraire, the Marine Corps prepared me to do everything that was like that. And that, that trust uh, tactics level we talk about and everything that we talk about, about uh, the situation dictates is you don't wish for something that you could have. Mm-hmm. You look at all the forces and aggregate that you do have and how to put your best people that are out here, and then you do this. And are there certain capacities that a certain major can't fill as a battalion like so? Absolutely there are, right? It's You're not going over to the... Uh, First Marine Division CP and sit with a bunch of lieutenant colonels and brigadier majors in a room right. with the same level and the same weight of doing that. So you have to learn what uses you have and what restrictions yep. that you have and trust that whole command team to get through and deal with the problem that they have at hand. And the Marine Corps taught me that along the way to do that. Transition is the interpretation and collective of all of those skills and finding how all of that applies to the same expectations when you're leaving. And if you open yourself up and you're not the king of the hill or, as you had said, Sergeant Major, when you're the top dog at TCOM up there, I didn't expect to ever be the top dog when I walked out of the Marine Corps. I expected Mm. to be the bottom guy on the rung with a mop bucket and something over there going. Uh, you want to be part of the company, you want to do this. So it's Here's, expectation management. Yeah, expectation. And yeah. I had also found that there were a lot of other people that had bad expectation management. Mm-hmm. They believed that because they had done this their entire career, that that should automatically transition over to a six-figure salary. Right. And, I should do it. and you know what? They're not wrong. They're going to have to knock on a lot of doors, or they're going to have to know mentors and people Rather than just flood organizations with resumes, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you're going to have to use that person who knows you to talk to that person that's over there to give them the why on your 32 years of military experience. 
I should be hired for this position over a guy in that community that's been growing up in the civilian sector, whether it's finance or anything, for their 30 years. Because the resume says they should have the job. There's their experience level. There's this that's mm-hmm, here. Mm-hmm. And I found out after the Marine Corps what I love about it. It's the Wild West out there. <laughs> yeah. There's no rules. Yeah. People want to write books and everything about there are rules. There is no rules in how somebody specifically ended up in a certain thing. And just like in the Marine Corps, I couldn't take Sergeant Major Carlton Kent's bio on the wall, lay it down when I was a younger Marine and go, if I do everything Sergeant Major Kent did, then I too will be the Sergeant Major of the Marine Corps one day. That ain't going to happen. Right. The people are different. The temperature is different. Everything. The same thing is applicable on the outside. Mm-hmm. But the people who go prepared, the people who also know that you're willing to do what it takes, no matter if you're 60, you're 40, if you're 24, if you're willing to get on the inside to start doing the work, the, the old movie Secret of My Success with yeah, Michael J. Yeah. If you're willing, <laughs> yeah. if you're willing to be Brantley in the mailroom, right? Of the past, yeah. If you're willing to be Brantley, once you get on the inside and you are you, it gives people the opportunity to know something about you that was not on that paper. Those intangibles. You yeah. And then all of a sudden, you may have applied for this job or something like that. They're like, can I talk to you about this other job that's over here? Oh, I didn't tell you. That's $44,000 more increase in pay. You have six people that's here. Uh, we really wasn't looking for that. But after talking to you for a while, we have another position to fill. It's over here to do that. You find those doors are more open when you're out of the uniform and you have that leeway to do that than you really ever did when you were in uniform because promotional opportunities, jobs and that are a pretty set path in the Marines. You know, even if you go into combat and there's certain things out of combat that happen out of that, you go back into a construct if you're in a career Mm -hmm. that still kind of puts you along this path, this path, or this path. When you're out there, if you take everything you've learned, if you reach out and you're actually willing to put humility and everything aside and reach out to somebody, it doesn't matter if it was that guy used to be a captain that used to work way underneath you when you were, like you said, the top person over here. But that guy is really doing very successful out there and seems to have their shit together. If you're willing to say, you know, I, I used to, that guy used to work for me. I should, if you're willing to say and throw that out the window yeah. and have a conversation that just says, I'm very interested in what you've been doing your career path or anything else, and I'd like to know if there's an opportunity within that construct that exists for me. When you put that aside like that, you find out that I think those restrictions that people are laying on themselves open that door up tremendously. I think and that's absolutely, yeah. It does, and it, and it gets you to a point to where you have stability again and passion in your life uh, the same way that you did that had stability and passion on that one day in the Marine Corps that you looked to the sky and said, I can never think about doing anything else other in my life. I love this, right? I get the feeling as a 51-year-old that's still a United States Marine, right? 
just in a different uniform. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I still get to help people. I still reach out to talk to people. You can still mentor people. There's nobody coming to me saying, I got to send you to top level school that's over here, something like that. You have the skill set that's here. And now you have the keys to fill that passion that's there. And after everybody served in that uniform, I always challenge people to follow a path that has applied passion. Meaning you don't want to follow the path that has a dreamer's path that results in, you know, Chris Farley, you living in a van down by the river that does that. (laughs) Follow the passion to do that and don't look for the job because you did the job all those years and you were told, do this, do that, did it to the best of your abilities. Nothing's changed. You have all that still resonant inside of you. You just need to open the doors that you need when you're prepared to do what you have to do. And a lot of times those doors don't make sense. And you look at those doors and it goes back and circles full circle to that conversation we had earlier about that person standing over there who took that moment of their time to walk over to you that wasn't even in your world to see something like that. Now I get the opportunity as well to be that person still to look at somebody, whether it's a young 26-year-old archaeologist that I'm standing down there when other people are like, you know, making snide comments on like, well, where were you at on 9-11 when we were rucking up and we were doing this? And you're kind of like, okay, that's not the right attitude to have Mm -hmm. because she's doing a skill you don't have. You did a skill she didn't had. You volunteered to do that. She's volunteering to do this. And, hey, brother, the last time I checked, she's standing knee-deep in a cesspool of shit right now on a fifth-world nation island away from her family and everything else, retrieving one of your brothers mm-hmm. that has been lost for 70-some years. How cool is that? Extremely, right? Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you get this bond well especially concerned this generation you know the big stereotype with the current generation is that they're not engaged in that way they're not as that they haven't made that connection between the dream and the application right that they're more than happy to sit behind their computers and talk a bunch of stuff but they're not actually going to go out there and get knee deep in some shit to save somebody else and so I think you could probably speak a little bit to mm-hmm. that because of your seeing this merger of the generations for a common purpose. But then also you've mentioned something to me in our email correspondence about an opportunity for transitioning Marines as well, right? So people who are trying to find that passion, reconnect with that level of brotherhood and that sense of purpose, right? So can we talk a little bit about history flight as we're coming here towards the end of our conversation, which – Quite honestly, I could sit here all day long and and talk to you about this stuff. This is really amazing. But I do want to make sure that we are mentioning History Flight because of the tremendous things that you guys are doing over there. And so for the the listeners who maybe aren't fully aware, I will reference um, the Leatherneck article um, that uh, Nancy put together uh, and – so we, there's definitely information out there that people can go, uh, look you guys up, and we'll talk about some of those links and things after 
uh, on where they can find you and find more about History Flight. But if you could just talk a little bit about it and those opportunities that, uh, that you guys Yeah, have. History Flight was an organization that was founded by a man named Mark Noah, uh, about 2003 time frame. And the, the, the bottom roots element was it was a lot of uh, guys that had a passion for flying uh, pirates. Mark is a UPS career pilot for, uh, for UPS. And he had linked together, and they had a bunch of people that kind of owned a B-25, a couple AT-6 Texans, a Stearman. You can relate it to any type of air show that you take kids to around America. There are certain elements of planes that are always there that provide the opportunity for people to fly in those planes that were here. And they owned a few of these. So they were going around uh, doing these flying circus kind of things on all these air shows. And they were hearing from veterans, and they would be veterans who, you know, uh, I, you know, the Rosie the Riveters, where I used to work on the AT6 Saxon, and you know, now Rosie's not, you know, 79 and 80 years old, uh, and people can't envision that these people used to look like this, <laughs> you know, they used to look like us that were there, right? And the pilots who flew the B25s, and now you're not flying the B25, it's a liability right now, mm-hmm. but you can sit on the waist or something here, <laughs> and the flood comes back of the stories and they said the stories they always found were every all these people would always tell you about the people who were left behind the people that couldn't be saved the people that they have nightmares about that ended up in a prison camp because they bailed out over germany Mm -hmm. 44 i never and i never knew what happened to that guy okay that was here and Mark and a few other ones kind of started doing the research behind these stories and started uncovering through the National Archives. They're not talking about anomalies here. They're talking about dozens of thousands of people. And I remember him telling me a story one time about the day that he came across something in the archive. He never heard of Tarawa. He was never in the military, never knew anything, and saw this stuff that just jumped off the page that said that we had left 541 people on an island in the middle of Pacific that never came home. And he kind of walked into the article uh, around the National Archives and just said, is this true? And found out that didn't just happen on one island, it happened well, on a lot of them yep. that were here. Therein started the bug with a lot of research, passion, and people to start turning the page away from the flight industry to investing. Because the money they were using for that, they were using for the research and to do this. Then the housing collapse happens in America. Mm -hmm. And when you can't pay your mortgage, you don't have a bunch of free cash to be taking airplane rides at these things here. So you have to pivot. And I caught up with Mark around 2015 time frame when I was over here at TCOM when the Marine Corps was going to make Mark an honorary Marine for bringing some of these Marines home in these previous years. And we spent a good two days that were up here talking, and I owned the history division underneath TCOM, underneath the university, the museums, and all that kind of. I always had a fascination to do those. But I, over the years, I always helped people connect the files all the way back from a corporal and a sergeant being widely read and taking that upon yourself to do that you knew the stories and knew how to call the right people to connect the information files on casualty cards or let's check on this individual over here and that's where that passion to do this line of work came from even when i was in a uniform with a primary job of being 
a combat U.S. Marine, your hobbyist passion was this. It was here. And that comes out. And so history flight teams uh, are now the world's most successful private MIA search and recovery organization in the U.S. It is the only full-time private sector 24-7 MIA search and recovery operation that is actually positioned primarily in Tarawa that is out there to help bring back as many of the missing people as we can in the race against time that yeah. is out there in the Tarawa, while also researching family cases and applying that same thing to look after and repatriate individuals lost in Belgium, Germany, France, Monte Cassino, Kasserine Pass, uh, Cabanatuan, Palawan in the Philippines that is out there. Uh, wherever you can do enough of the research and get enough of the permitting and get enough of the passionate people that you have to be able to go out there and do the science on the ground that you find out a lot of times some of that science and pieces over the years had happened. Just the full picture didn't get Just put didn't together. Get the full follow through. That's right. And a lot of things that the government doesn't have the infinite resources. A lot of times, you're active duty people that go over and do tours yeah. over at now the Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency. But a captain in a Marines that goes to the DPAA is not going to be a captain in the Marines that then becomes a major lieutenant colonel in the DPAA. They go over as a B billet type mm -hmm. tour and mm -hmm. they come back and they do that. And you find that we go out to sites, whether it's through privately freeze funds, whether it's through projected minimal contracts from the U.S. government or any other means to provide that, we go out and sit on sites until the job is done. Not two weeks, not here, until the full exploitation of that site gives you the scientific methodology and everything to say that when you walk off that site, I feel a responsibility, not to just the families, right? Because when one of my teams walks off that site, who knows if anybody's ever going to go back there again. Mm -hmm. right. And some of these people, that may be their last hope to do that. But it also gives the government a good stewardship of whatever it is that's here because they also know there is a good expectation when we walk off that site. We're also telling the United States government that there is nothing in this there has been buffers dug it's done here there is nothing that's here because the end result is there are also other families waiting for their turn mm -hmm. to come up and you just can't keep pumping money into empty holes around the world and you find out for a lot of years sometimes people did do that and it's sad but i don't blame people because i i wasn't that wasn't me. Yeah, there's well, not a lot of ton of awareness. I don't about know this kind what was stuff. happening yeah. at that time. All I can be responsible for is this time in 2021, as the situation on the ground dictates, or that, and applying the people that we talked about earlier with that diverse team across, and you send them out there with not just this uh, micromanagement overview is this the trust and their abilities to say that this is a young osteologist that is here. And when that girl looks down into something, they can give you a good reference of when that burial site happened. Uh, they can give you a great reference. One of the greatest things I had ever seen in my life, and, and I was just geeking like a geek about this, right, is 
watching them lovingly bring out every bone out of the ground of one of your brothers, whether that's a rifleman from 1943, 44, an air crew pilot, that is a person that said, send me, mm-hmm. I will go do this, mm-hmm. right? And watch them painstakingly, not rush through a, nothing, painstaking and loving as if that was their own son or daughter. Pedestal them up, raise them, move them to an examination table, and then sat on a screen one day and watched a pile of bones that was just like this in a jar. Like it was Steve Austin and the Six Million Dollar Man. Watch that girl stitch a hand together. Jeez. On a display thing. Right to every phalange. Also, the mixture of bones because the individual was laying next to another one. Oh, jeez. So you're kind of sitting here like, watch them go. That's not his tip of his right finger. That's the tip of him on his right finger. Because if you look at where the bones fracture and they come together, yeah. that's right here. And you look at the age and the thing that's here, it lays into where bone number three is at. It's over here. And watch them. And you look down and you just go, my God, that is a U.S. Marine rifleman that was killed on 20 November in 1943. It's not just a pile of something. That is some mother's son's Mm -hmm. hand Mm -hmm. right here that was holding a rifle or holding a Bible or holding anything at that point in time. It really is. And that applies across that. And, And where that one's going with what you had said is I had found that whether you have a uniform or not, that is very therapeutic to a veteran to be able to continue to do that line of duty uh, for uh, the government, for your own humanity that is here. And I also found out it's very cathartic because some of us had the unpleasant experience in our life of putting on one of our highest level uniforms and getting dressed in a mirror and having our buddies straighten everything else because we're going to get into a car with a chaplain and we're going to drive to somebody's house and tell them their son's not coming home. And that's the worst little trip. I mean, nobody's talking in there. You're just going up, take a deep breath, open the car doors up. Here's the family uh, that's there. There's a, uh, there's a great book. Uh, that's out there uh, that has Travis Mannion's sister and uh, and and uh, Brendan Looney's wife that were both killed, uh, Naval Academy graduates, called The Knock on the Door. And it basically was their family experience on what it was like to be on the other side of the door mm-hmm. when somebody knocked and said, my brother's not coming home, that was on that. And that I found there was no reason in that ETRS seminar transitioning out that somebody like me should have put MIA search and recovery on the bottom of that because the skill sets and everything of the career pathway did not point to where that was at. But that's what I put. And sometimes ours is not the reason why, right? I believe there is a few, if you believe, I believe there's a higher power, the higher hand a lot of time that puts people in paths in life Mm -hmm. and intersects with other people. And I had found whether it's 
the young ladies I'm talking about who are also the gentlemen that are out there doing that. I have some of the greatest scientists in the mm-hmm. world that are these guys that are from uh, Ireland, uh, from Spain, from everywhere else. That They're working on returning American Americans, soldiers, yeah. sailors, and airmen with the same passion as if that was their own kid. And everything in the world says they shouldn't be like that. They should worry about their own thing, right? But they're not doing that. You lash them together. And I found that if you can provide opportunities as well, instead of just taking, and these are all great too because they provide an outlet. There are numerous opportunities out there to provide people an opportunity to get together with their buddies on whether it's a reunion for a short period of time to do that or whether it's to take them hunting or whether it's to take them on a fishing trip that does that. And those are cathartic as well. Fabulous. It gives them two or three days or gives them something of a money's that were here. Right. But those normally are not giving them something for their lifetime that is feeling somewhat of a void, a larger void that they are looking for. It's the reason that some of them are on their 11th, 12th, 13th job. There's something that there's not fulfilling on that, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but there's something on this line that is over here that has everybody's jaw hit the deck when they hear about. There's people out there doing this, and those veterans... Uh, we, I took the, the organization from about 20% and 15% veterans to flip that up and started bringing more veterans in to do that, even though they're not the archaeologists. They're team leaders. They're the EOD specialists. They, they fit in the puzzle. And every single one of them that you can take out on a two-week excursion or you can take out to something here, you find that there is this factor when they get there that you can just see it on their face. The heavy and the weight of what is happening and also what it is that they gave a good portion of their lives for, they want to be a part of that. And you had to find a vehicle to do that because once they enter that arena, uh, they want to stay in that arena. Mm -hmm. The hardest thing in this line of work to do that, as we discussed before, is there is not a pathway in this. Um, this is hopefully what I believe I would like to think 80 years from now when we're all gone, I would like to understand that there are still people with this passion that are doing this work because this is only going to make a dent over the next 80 years. Sure. There's still right. going to be missing right. people. Like you said they're all over the And Pacific. as warfare comes, there will be more. more. This is a Absolutely. business where there's going to be more. DNA is great now. There's a good thing. Dead or alive, you're coming home. We wasn't burying people in Iraq and Afghanistan to do that, right? You would like to believe that it's not those things we talked about earlier that are the bolt-on things. You want to make sure that people have that investment in the human element for humanity to continue because this is this kind of mission is all that's still right and good about the united states of america today when other nations look at the united states that we are willing to travel to the ends of the earth and there are people willing to go put their lives on the line and that to bring home their lost gone brother that tells you a lot about a culture on who those people are and you guys are doing that i definitely would have Definitely foot stomp this point. You guys are bringing them home. You're not just pulling them out of the ground and identifying them. You're bringing them home to the point where you're actually doing 
funeral ceremony. I'm coming home, and what I instituted over here is every individual that is identified and after the family is notified through the casualty offices of the Marine Corps and everything else, every individual. We have one next week, uh, Captain Walker. Uh, that was leading his Marines and 2nd Battalion, 2nd Marines, that was repatriated uh, off of Tarawa into the punch bowl of the cemetery, the Pacific. And there's been remains that's been moved all over the place. And through assistance with research and a few other things, uh, Captain Walker's finally coming home to Tennessee uh, on the north. And then after that is a young man named PFC Hancock in San Antonio, Texas, on August 4th. Uh, 1st Battalion, 6 Marines, fought against a Japanese bonsai attack on the evening of the 22nd that was out there with a lot of his individual uh, fellow men uh, fought to the death that is on that. And he is coming home. And for every one of those, those things are still all that's still right and good. Because from the time that that individual leaves a lab in Hawaii or wherever, the same things that you see as if an active duty Marine perished in the line of duty last night still happens today. A Marine rank equivalent or someone in dress blues will escort that body from when they put them on a plane to the transfer points in America. You will see the planes come in. And you will see the fire truck shoot the water over the plains, whether it's Dallas, Fort Worth. Once again, everything that if you tune into certain or just only you, you get your news from one news station, you do that, whatever that is, right? I tend your to listen to chamber. about yeah, yeah, I tend to listen to about thirteen or fourteen other in little increments, right, to get that. But there are people that would like you to believe that, that America doesn't exist anymore. That America does exist. It's out there. It exists. More of that America should be exposed to the Absolutely. average American to tell them what the root of this country is, why we do what we do. So to be the COO, bucket hauler, you can name it, for an organization that still has a root ethos of dead or alive, you're coming home. Uh, everything that was promised to me as a young Marine that says the force multiplier we talked about, that force multiplier that says, why should I fight harder today when I've only got five rounds of ammunition or six It's Jimmy Howard in 1966 saying, I'm not giving up this fucking hill yeah. that's here. And everything, I only got 18 troopers, and we're going to get overrun. I'm not losing this hill. Well, Sergeant Howard, we only got this limited amount of ammunition. We'll throw rocks at them then, dog. That is what keeps the wolf at bay. Because the more that you expose people to those stories through the context of history, it deters anyone outside the United States from wanting to come and kill our families or anybody else here. Because no matter what they see on the news that says America's weak or it's a right for the taking or that, those Jimmy Howards and again, everybody else exists in there. When Admiral Yamamoto said the hardest thing of America, if we ever had to invade the American homeland, is impossible because you will find a rifle behind every blade of grass. So we need to hit them and destroy their fleet early. But he also said, if we do not completely destroy that fleet over here, war's over before it even started. Because I know, because yeah. he said, I have been in America and I know what's coming after us if we don't deliver that blow. And they didn't deliver that blow. So 
you're seeing now the things in Afghanistan. You're seeing the, you know, this was the, what happened to the Russians. It's now the lost empire of America. And this is the American decline. It's the American decline if Americans let mm-hmm. the American decline happen. But it goes of this ethics, it goes against our education continuum. Why do we need to read those books? Why is it that Marines need to learn what soldiers did at the Little Bighorn? Well, why should I do that? It's not a U.S. Marine. Because we don't have carte blanche and the blanket on all the great ideas. Younger Marines, at the most youthful point, need to be like the old Indian chiefs sitting with somebody that's telling the story of their people. Because the story of their people is what fills in the blank in 1966 on Howard's Hill. Right. It's what fills that void of we don't have the tools and the resources to defeat these guys. But we have the men to do that. And that 10th power of that, 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 that pride, that not on my watch— I'm not going into the history books as this failure after what all these people did before me to do that. Anybody wants to know what the U.S. Marine Corps does for them that's here because we go into these things every year of do we need a corps, do we not need a corps. They don't have to read thick books. The three stanzas of the U.S. Marines hymn tells you everything that the Marines have done for the country, are doing, and will do in the future for the country. It is a blueprint of everything consisted in three of those stanzas and then everything else that we had wrapped up into this podcast. If you could couch the feeling that all of us have of what you wanted to do in developing this podcast to what guests you want to bring in to get something out of this podcast. And you couch that same desire that a 51 year old man still has like that. And then you put that fluoride in the water of 200,000 young gunslingers that are out there today. I'm not going to sit back here and anywhere to let anybody badmouth to say that I'm in some great decline of, uh, of humanity. Uh, I can only be responsible for what happens on my watch. And I am not going to go to the grave watching some foreign soldierly or somebody else come in to say that after 245 years of people who said, I have one life to live for my country, people who did that ain't happening on my watch, man. And there is a lot more Americans that are out there, regardless of political things that are there. I am a firm believer that there are a lot more average Americans that feel like that, that are, that you may not see on podcasts every day that are just going to work, making a living and doing everything day, Nancy. And trust me, when you poke the bear that's out there and the time comes, um, history tells me, like we talked about here, when is history tells me we have to have a plan, right? Because every 20 to 25 years since 1775, this entire nation goes to war. And that's not a boast. The average kid can pull it out. There's been a couple of periods. It's been just a little bit longer than 25 years. We're talking about the end of the Civil War till the Spanish-American War. Okay. But what happens in between that period mm-hmm. is American finds five or six other little shitty engagements they find themselves in around yep. the world yep. that they have to go help freedom or they have to go and put their things. And at the same time, they have to refine everything to get to that next 25th thing to be prepared. 
Um, the height of American combat dwindled in about 2007. And we said that before. Two full-scale major theaters of war where everybody that was in uniform was going to Afghanistan, Iraq, or they were going into an area in which they had to go into the Gulf of Aden and sit there. They, they had to, everybody's doing Africa. something. Yeah, the JTF, yeah. So if you take 2007 as basically not 2021 with the last few troops coming out of here or there or that. If you take 2007 and treat that as like 1945, 1952, 1974, we were at the height of combat operations for employing the U.S. military for what the U.S. military is made for. I personally believe the trigger point for the next one was 2007 was the start date because that's when we started to reduce two theaters of war and do what we talked about before. So we were full kinetic military, mm-hmm. everybody in 2007. Yeah, I mean, the bases a, were ghost towns. PXs were empty. Bingo. Yeah. It's not that way now. Right. So if you take that from 2007 and you apply the 20 to 25-year overlay process on top of that, you get 2017, 2027. The next window for the greatest fight where everybody's going to go to war again is in the window of 2027 and that next five-year period that is here. And, Justin, you're not a strategist. That's a, History tells me that because the American blueprint since 75, when you know the construct of how we have went about doing this and how we've maintained this republic that is here, that principle is real because it's not just me making it up. It's you can lay out the battle history from 1775 to 2021, and you can find that 25-year period that basically says from Mexico to large male-scale engagements, War of 1812, Revolutionary War, Mexico, Civil War, Spanish-American, World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, in between there, the Hades, the Dominican Republics, the Panamas, the Grenadas, all of this. That blueprint is reality. And reality says we are nearing the window where we were just coming out of the four to five little crappy little things again to where everybody's going to get the call to Mm -hmm. have to major up. Now, a lot of people will say it's this person or it's that person or here. I don't care who that person is. Yeah. Okay. That person can be anybody as long as we're prepared for that. And reality tells me that's going to happen. America does not want to get caught flat-footed with doing that. And I truly do believe that the average American, even though they say that, you know, that kid will never pick up a rifle or they'll do that, uh, the luxury of America is it's been a long time since we've had somebody on our own foreign shores to be able to do this. But trust me, I don't think Americans are going to be really open to having anybody roll tanks through Nebraska. Mm. And they're just going to just stand by the street corners and allow somebody to happen like that. Um, And that's why I'm just really uh, happy for the opportunity today to to be able to come in and share some time with you all that was on this it. This is amazing. This because is so this good. kind of a podcast is the kind of podcast like we had talked about is these may be the intangibles that you can expose people to something that they say 92% of that worthless podcast that Justin Lee you just did didn't apply to my life. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? 
Yes. I don't know if that's possible. I, I, I don't think but so. But there was two things that was in there when I listened to today that really can resonate. And it's not my job, your job, or anybody else's job to tell them what that 2% right. is that affects them. It's out there. So you choosing to provide this kind of venue to do that, I believe, is a force multiplier to today's military uh, in any way, shape, or form. I can be uh, a part of still doing that to be a force multiplier, um, I'm game. I'm what, all in. I mean, careful what you wish for because they're going <laughs> to definitely have you back then. Um, this is really amazing. Uh, we'll be putting links in the show notes portion, right, once we get this thing uh, going live. Uh, but Sergeant Major, I just I can't thank you enough. This was really great. Um, but, yeah, History Flight. Definitely, for all the listeners, please check them out. Throw your support their way, uh, doing just uh, wonderful things. Um, and, and like you said, I think the, the big theme here is that the engagement and then that, um, you know, not that the idea of never leaving anyone behind, um, I think it applies to more than just the battlefield. Um, it applies to where we sit with our education, where we sit with Marines transitioning, and then obviously uh, those Marines that are that were left um, defending our, our nation. So, Very well said. Thank you again so much. This is such a great time, such an honor. Like I said, I could be here all day, but unfortunately um, we've come to an end of this one, but we'll definitely look to have you back. I love Here's it. Best of luck with all the future ones that you got. Thank you so much. It's great having you here. All right. That was Sergeant Major Justin Lee Hugh, and he was a lot of fun to have in-house. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely it's, uh, it was worthy of two episodes, and so I'm glad that uh, we, didn't, um, we didn't go with a huge editing endeavor to cram it all into one. That was worth, worth two, for sure. Yes, and having him in probably knocked two points off of my I'm-not-having-fun scale out of, out of ten. <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely. <laughs> no, I'm definitely sticking around for a little bit longer, for sure. Um, yeah, that, that, uh, his, his scale, um, was, I think, extremely profound and it resonated with me a lot. It really, yes. And it, it, it clearly will apply to more than just the Marine Corps. Absolutely. I think all of us go into our endeavors, whether it be as an active duty Marine, uh, reserve Marine, uh, just an active duty service member, um, police officer, fireman, teacher, accountant yeah whatever yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> somebody even who's just wondering uh you know what they're going to do with the next step of their lives i think his metric is uh, it, he 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 put uh i guess what is it uh, power to truth or whatever mm-hmm. it is because you know i i said that in in my 20 years like oh, i'm just going to do this until i get out like i had no intention uh initially when i raised my right hand of of being a retired marine I just always said, I'm just going to do this till I stop having fun. Like, but I had no idea what that meant. You know, it was just a cool thing to say that yeah. really prevented me from having a plan. Yeah. Uh, so, I, you know, like most things in my life, I, I couldn't get out of my own way for the good in this case because I, you know, was able to, to fulfill my, uh, you know, full 20 years. But um, I think the way he talked about, hey, when I go through a day and – you know, my needle starts to shake a little bit and all of a sudden I'm getting close to like, hey, I'm picking out more bad stuff mm-hmm. 
that I'm picking out good. It's not because the environment around me has changed, but I have changed, and now I'm perceiving my environment differently than I did before. And so ultimately, everything is always going to suck because my headspace is I don't want to be here anymore. Yeah. It's not that the the Marine Corps sucks or that my Marines aren't awesome anymore or like all oh, these new Marines, they don't know what they're doing or whatever it is. It has nothing to do with it. Marines are awesome. Marine Corps has been doing this thing for, you know, hundreds of years. So what's changing now is you. And I think he gives us a metric now to internalize or to, to be more self-reflective. Mm-hmm. Also, too, I loved his idea. Like, hey, I'm hitting eight. I'm going to go interact yeah. with Marines. Yeah. Um, he also got to eight and got terrified. Yeah. Absolutely. I yeah. mean, when he went and spoke to the yeah. CG, like, yeah. I don't know if I can do this anymore. Yeah. And he had kind of eye-opening, too. Not really eye-opening, but relatable. Yeah. Uh, he goes and he has no idea how to transition yeah. out, how to go find anything else to do. Yeah. Which, how many so. times that he briefed, I'm sure. Yeah. Like, Hey, Marines, have a plan. Have a plan. Get, have a resume. Yeah. And, and then. And guess who didn't have a resume? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's how it goes. I mean, that, I, I, I totally can empathize and sympathize with that because, yeah, it happens. You get so focused on making sure everybody else is squared away. It's like making dinner. Yeah. It's like you're so busy making food for everybody else that when it comes time for you to eat, you're like, Shit, I guess I'll just have a sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But he transitioned into a very uh very noble cause, uh history flight. I can't I um, can't uh, he latched on to that and he's put his effort behind those guys out of Fredericksburg here. Sounds like it was a mutual latching yeah. that they they he was the perfect fit for them and, and they were the perfect fit for him. But I mean what a just an amazing cause. Um, so yeah, for all of you folks that are wondering if you can replicate your passion for the core outside of the core, the answer is an emphatic yes, you can. Um, you just need to do things like listen to this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, talk to folks and yeah, just, it's not going to fall in your lap necessarily, uh, but, yeah, don't also feel like because I'm getting out of uniform that I'm not going to have the same level of fellowship or that my future career is going to be any less fulfilling than it is now. It can be and, and then some. And you touch on that a little bit with our next guest, uh, Mr. Miles Vining. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, we touch on a lot of things. And he, <laughs> touch on a lot of things. That's going to be a good one next. Yeah, he's an amazing character. Um, and... Uh, yeah, we'll, actually, we'll hopefully give him on more than just uh, this upcoming episode. But yeah, yeah. and um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, one. So a little little sneak peek there. But uh, yeah, if you want to learn more about History Flight, they're at historyflight.com. You can throw some support their way. Uh, we have a couple articles that you can find in the show notes. They're actually in last week's show notes too, yeah, but we uh, yeah, didn't quite hit it. So we got two articles about History Flight, and we got one about the DPAA. Uh, who works with the history flight, obviously, to mm-hmm. help get the, the remains back and buried. Um, and with that, we just want to take a moment, like we did last time, call out some uh, outstanding, outstanding Marines. Marines. This time, though, you're going to have to uh, apo- I apologize in advance because I'm just going to read off the names. If you want to learn more about these award winners, 
we have their full information up at mca-marines.org slash info-awards because this is for the Information Awards Center, and there are a lot of winners. So rather than trip over all the award names, I'm just going to go through the, the names of the winners. So uh, congratulations and thank you to Captain Jennifer Eichenberg, Mr. Mark Kemp, Gunnery Sergeant Craig M. Manning, Sergeant Neil Copenhaver, Gunnery Sergeant Jose Gomez, Sergeant Tyler Horton, Captain Michael Higgins, Gunnery Sergeant Andrew Guthert, Lance Corporal Erica Braun, Sergeant Cameron Eckert, apologies, Mr. Curtis Lineweaver, Sergeant Michael McConnell, and some in a unit award, Third Marine Aircraft Wing. Back to individuals, Captain James Brooks, Mr. Eric Shaner, Gunnery Sergeant Joseph Bates, and a couple and another uh, two unit awards, Marine Wing Communication Squadron 18, Marine Corps Information Operations Center. And finally, Mr. Joseph Garachi. Let's hope I said your name right there, sir, <laughs> Mr. Joseph Garachi. All right, so congratulations and thank awesome. you to all those Congrats, folks. Marines. Uh, we'll, keep, we'll keep bringing you uh, those names as they come up. And if you would like to attend an event or support any of the Marines, check us out at mca-marines/events. And we will see you next week with Miles Vining. Yeah, Semper Fidelis.